This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Well, good morning. The first reading from the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're going to be reading chapter 22 and verses 14 through to 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. The second reading today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, just a couple of things before I start. First of all, the passage is actually, the passage that Kylie just read is what I'm going to be speaking on today. So have that open for uh, in front of you. Um, we actually, we've changed our version of the Bible recently, and so we've now purchased a bunch of NIVs that are now on the table out there if you prefer to follow the passage along from a Bible. But I'd encourage you as well to bring your own Bible uh, to church um, because it kind of activates the Bible a bit if you are actually bringing it along. So uh, bring your own Bible 
Uh, it will be printed out, but also you can pick up a, uh, a copy of the Bible um, from the, the porch for using in the service. We also have an outline, a sermon outline, which will be very useful as we uh, look through it, through this passage. But let's pray and ask for God's help. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, now, if you've been alert to what's happening for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we human beings are in trouble. It's not been comfortable reading these last couple of chapters of the book of Romans, has it? Paul, the apostle, has ripped off the band-aids of civility and self-righteousness and exposed the gangrene that is feeding on the human soul. Where we think there's two categories of people, you know how we think there are the good and the bad people in the world, Paul tells us, well, actually there's only one category, the one that we're all in, and it's not the good one, it's the bad one. And he says, quoting Psalm 14, we saw this last week in chapter 3, he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one righteous, not even one. Now, God is completely egalitarian about this. He's not a racist. He judges everyone on the basis of what they have done and on nothing else, which is good news. We learn from Paul that God is not unfair. God is not bribable or swayed by good looks or prone to favoring one club or tribe over the other. But it poses, it poses a problem for us too. For if God judges justly on the basis of our deeds, then who could be found innocent? As Psalm 130 says, If you kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one could stand. There is, remember, no one righteous, not even one. Jews and Gentiles alike, that's everyone, are under the power of sin. So that's our dilemma then. We're judged by God for our works, our deeds, as we would want it, as it should be. But if that's so, then we're all condemned. But there's a question here for God too. I won't say it's a problem as such because I don't think God has those, but it's a question. How can God keep his promises to have a people for himself and yet also remain just? How can God maintain his absolute and pure justice and leave anyone standing? If he was to be completely just, would he not live in a lonely universe, an empty cosmos? But if he just lets sin go, go, if he just lets it go, just overlooks it, then how is he just? Could we not complain that he is not a just God? How can he be true to his promises and yet be just? You might say that God's love and his justice seem to be on a collision course here. This is what a young German monk called Martin Luther experienced in the early 1500s. Everywhere he looked, he found the forbidding face of God's righteous justice. He knew God was righteous. He knew God was just. And yet, when he looked at himself, he did not find this comforting whatsoever. He could not see what was good in the good news, since he could not see how he, as a sinful human being, could ever survive the judgment of God. But reading the book of Romans, and especially today's passage, changed all that and changed him. 
Um, there aren't that many pictures of Martin Luther, but there are a few pictures of Martin Luther before he'd read the book of Romans and understood it and came to this understanding. And he looks very gaunt and thin. And then the pictures of him after it, is he looks like fat and jolly, right? And I think that sums up his state of mind. For he was anxious before he came to realise how good the good news was. He, wrote, he once wrote, Note that here, in these very verses we're looking at today, is the very centre and kernel of the epistle and of all scripture. That's pretty impressive billing. So let's take a close look at what Paul unfolds for us. Well, first of all, he announces that there is a resolution to the dilemmas in verses 21 and 22. The righteousness of God, he says, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, the Old Testament. It's God's righteousness that we would have questioned. Can God be really righteous if he forgives or if he denies his promises? But, says Paul, God is righteous. But how? We'll have a look at verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Our translators have added that word given in, but it's not a bad addition actually because it shows that something new is going on here. God's righteousness is not just a quality that God has or the vindication of his own name as an answer to his dilemma. It also comes to us, to all who believe. Remember, God could judge us and walk away. But his righteousness has been extended. It's been given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. His righteousness reaches out to include, not to exclude. But how does that work? Well, in case we've forgotten, the searing indictment of chapters 1 and 2, Paul says it again in verse 23. He says there, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Let's just get that clear, he says. Remember, all have sinned. No one is justified by their works. No one can stand on judgment day on the basis of their deeds. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It makes no difference who you are. Having the law of the Jews or not having it, all have sinned. The verdict is in. The charges have been laid and they've been laid unilaterally. Oh, we tend to believe that this is not so because some human beings are relatively better than others, right? We, there are human beings who, who are better than others, I suppose, if you were thinking about moral performance. And so we assume that this verdict can't be true, can't be so absolute. It is true that Usain Bolt is a faster sprinter than I am. He ran... Surprise, I know... Uh, <laughs> He ran, uh, the, he holds the world record, and he ran the 100 metres in 9.58 seconds. Now, my time would likely be twice that, even if I made it to the end without a cardiac arrest. But in 2012, a cheetah, by which I mean the uh, big cat, named Sarah, ran 100 metres in 5.95 seconds, 38% faster than Usain Bolt. And according to sports scientists... No human being will ever go as fast as that, ever. We just don't have the physiology for it. We, we will never attain that speed. We will always fall short, both Usain Bolt and Michael Jensen. Bolt is indeed fast relative to me, but neither of us will ever approach Sarah. There, there are better 
and worse human beings, no doubt. But none of us ever approach the glory of God. We always fall short. But this is where God intervenes in Jesus Christ. All have sinned, yes, but all who have faith are likewise saved. How? It's by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, God solved the puzzle of his own justice and the puzzle of human salvation. Now you might ask, how does that work? What does the death of Jesus, got, what's that got to do with my salvation? Now it really is the richest mystery of the New Testament. We could never adequately explain what it means. And so Paul does it here by kind of using three metaphors all stuck together like beads on a string in these verses, verses 24 to 25. They're so rich, it's a little bit like he's packed everything into a tiny suitcase. You know that you don't want to put your baggage in the hole when you go on a plane anymore, so you kind of just really you cram things into your suitcase and when you open it, your undies spring out because you've stuffed them in. Well, Paul has stuffed a whole bunch of stuff into this, a whole bunch of meaning into just these couple of verses, verses 24 and 25. All, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 23. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by, by faith. There are three pictures here or stories that each give us a glimpse of what went on when Jesus died for our sins. We've got justification, we've got redemption, and we've got the sacrifice of atonement. You can see I provided a table to kind of show how they each work, to show how each one works, even though Paul even just makes glancing reference to each of them here. First, he says, we are justified freely by God's grace. Now, to be justified, what does that mean? It means to be found in the right, to be vindicated, to be declared innocent. It helps us to know here that in both Greek and Hebrew, the, word we trans the words we translate righteous and justify really are the same word. They come from the same word group. They, they sound the same. So God in his righteous, righteousness righteousifies us. We might say he righteousifies us or God in his justice justifies us. It's a courtroom metaphor. We've already heard that God is the judge of all and that there will be a final judgment, a day of judgment, a cosmic courtroom, if you like. And we've heard that no one on that day will be declared righteous or justified according to the things they have done since all have sinned. There is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned. We stand in the dock, guilty, and the judge's gavel is about to come down against us. We surely face the punishment that is our due. We are waiting for the sentence that is coming. But we are all justified. We are still justified. Not now because of works or deeds, but by God's grace, freely. That word freely is really important. It was free of charge on the basis of God's own grace, not of anything in us whatsoever, but on the basis of God's own grace. How? 
Well, Paul doesn't spell it out yet. He just rushes on to the second metaphor, which is the metaphor of redemption. Now, who do you redeem? You redeem slaves who cannot free themselves. You pay the price for their freedom to to unlock them from their captivity. Now, remember, for Israel, the great historic moment of redemption was the Exodus, where they were miraculously liberated by the Lord God from the power of Pharaoh, who had held them as slaves in Egypt. Paul says that not just Jews now, but Jews and Gentiles, all human beings, are now under a power, the power of sin, a power worse than Pharaoh, more brutal even than Pharaoh, whose impact is deadly. He will go on to say in chapter 6 of Romans, he will say, we are slaves to sin, which leads to death. We are helpless to free ourselves. What the death of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead win for us is freedom from the power of sin. Jesus himself uses this metaphor when he said in Mark's gospel, you might remember this verse, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Can you remember what he says? A ransom for many. His life given as a ransom to redeem many. Christ brought our freedom by giving his life as the price of our release. We need Paul to say more here. We're justified and we're redeemed. But how else did this gift of God work? How are we justified and redeemed? This is where he brings in the third picture. It's a picture of the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. You might remember that in the temple, right in the inner room of the temple, was a place called the Holy of Holies. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant, which was like a golden box. Now, our family, just the other night, we watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is all about the Ark of the Covenant, but is spectacularly biblically inaccurate. (laughs) So don't learn from Harrison Ford. But on the lid of the Ark, of the, the real Ark of the Covenant, were two golden angels with their wings outstretched. And that outstretching of their wings formed a place where, where you were supposed to go and meet God. It was the place, it was called the mercy seat, the place to meet God, his throne. Or in Hebrew, they use the word kiporet. Once a year, on the day called the Day of Atonement, and our Jewish neighbours still call this, still celebrate this day, and they call it Yom Kippur, because you go to the kiporet, right, you get atonement, the place of atonement, Yom Kippur, same word. On that day, the high priest would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and approach the ark and the mercy seat, the place of atonement, and he would sprinkle the blood of a bull to make atonement for the sins of the people. The bull died in the place of the people to turn aside the wrath of God so that they would be forgiven their sins and more so that they would be cleansed from all unrighteousness. The old King James Version when it was translating this very passage, it used this word, it used the word propitiation, which means not just to cleanse us from sin, not just to wipe away our sin, but actually to turn aside God's wrath. In other words, what happened in this sacrifice atonement of atonement? Did something for us cleansed our sins, but also did something for God? It turned aside his wrath. 
See what's happening then in verse 25. See who presents the sacrifice. It's God who himself provides the sacrifice. And then who is the sacrifice? Not a bull this time, but Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Jesus Christ dies in our place as a substitute for us, dying the death that we deserved, offering his blood to cleanse us from sin, freeing us from sin's sin's lethal power and turning aside God's wrath that was justly against us. It's a sacrifice that pays the price to free us, to liberate us from sin and bears the penalty that we owed. In the court, then, we are not guilty. In the slave market, we are free. And in the temple, we are forgiven and cleansed. As the song, the hymn says, For on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. And how are we to receive these these benefits, these gifts? How are we to be justified, redeemed and atoned for? What attaches us to those marvellous things? Certainly not because we have any merit whatsoever. It's certainly not because we belong to a group, a particular group. The gift of God is to be received by faith. Paul said this a few times now. He says right back at the beginning of the passage, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, he'd spoken of the righteousness of God that is by faith from first to last. For the righteous will live by faith. And now we see what he means. To be justified, to avoid condemnation, to be declared righteous in the sight of God. You have to believe him. God will not justify anyone who by doing, good th- by, doing thing- by doing good things, but he will justify those who have faith in Jesus Christ. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, a person will be justified by faith when excluded from righteousness of works, that's all of us, remember, no one, can, no one, no one righteous, he or she, by faith, lays hold of the righteousness of Christ and clothed in it appears in the sight of God not as a sinner but as righteous. We wear, I love this metaphor, we wear the clothes of Christ's righteousness. We're clothed in his righteousness. That is, that is what having faith in him is like. So that when we are judged indeed, we are found not to be sinners but to be righteous. This reveals God's sheer genius in solving the dilemmas that we started with. He presents Jesus as a sacrifice which fulfills the demands of his own justice. He does not simply sweep righteousness under the rug, but answers it himself in Jesus Christ. One might have said, why did he wait so long? And Paul would say, well, God was not ignoring sin in human beings, but was waiting till the time of Christ And there he demonstrates just how righteous he is. The righteous demands of the law are met by Jesus Christ in him, in his death on the cross. In Jesus Christ, God has his cake and eats it too. 
He is just and at the same time justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. He keeps his promises and also is perfectly just. That resolves his dilemma. But it also resolves our dilemma. For where can we find the mercy of God? How can we ever be justified since all have sinned? We can be justified by the grace of God, which we can receive by faith, by believing him. We can move from the power of sin and death into the power of righteousness and life simply by receiving God's gift. I am a slave and yet redeemed. I am a criminal and yet acquitted. I am a sinner and yet forgiven. And it all comes out of the miraculous, grace-filled righteousness of the God who even acquits the ungodly and is met by mere faith alone on our part. Now, this is glorious news, but it's also humbling. This is humbling news, but it's also glorious. That's why Paul says what he says next. He says, where then is boasting? That's in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. No one can sit here and boast of how righteous they are. Usain Bolt still can't beat a cheater. In relative terms, you might be good. But in absolute terms, it is the case that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, even though we come to God empty-handed as we must, even though we come without our achievements, without our LinkedIn page or our CV or whatever it might be, even though we come to him without our ethnic privilege, even though we come to him without our religiosity, we come to him and can know justification and redemption and atonement, forgiveness, because of God's grace. God's grace is an extraordinary leveller. He will judge Jews and Gentiles by the same justice, but he will just justify Jews and Gentiles, whoever else, by the same faith, because he offers them the same gift in Jesus Christ. For there is only one God, and he's the God of all people everywhere. And he now reveals how, even though all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all people are now called to faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that can justify anyone who believes. It's why in the Reformation back in the 1500s, they used to say that justification is by faith alone. Faith alone. Even though it produces all kinds of good works, and we'll be talking about that as we go through the book of Romans, but it is a faith without our works, without our good deeds, that indeed saves us. We come to God empty-handed. We walk away with a marvellous gift from him. Justification, redemption, forgiveness. And so the question is for us, do you have this faith? Now, don't worry. I think sometimes we think of faith as a sort of special quality that only a few especially saintly people have. It's not an inner vibe, this faith, or something mystical or given only to a few, however. Faith that justifies us is simply believing in the promises of God, simply clinging to his word, simply believing that Jesus is now alive and that he is your Lord, 
It's simply hearing this good news and saying thank you. It's taking the gift of God's grace in Christ, humbly, for what it is, a freely given gift, given to you, not because you deserved it, but even though you haven't. It is confidence, not in yourself, but in the grace of God. Maybe today, as we come to the Lord's table to remember the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us in the meal that he gave us to illustrate us, to illustrate it, you might come forward as you never have before, knowing more profoundly that you are justified, that you are redeemed, that you are forgiven, and believing the judge's verdict, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.